0: In Exodus chapter 11, we have come to the 10th and the final plague that God brought upon the Egyptians because they refused to let his people go. This is the plague that God warned about even before the plagues began. Uh, Way back in Exodus chapter 4, God had said to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The Lord was very patient and very forbearing. Through nine lesser plagues, God has given Pharaoh and all of Egypt notice and opportunity to do the right thing. But God's patience with rebellion is not infinite. Righteousness demands that God's patience have a limit when it comes to sin. God would not be a good God to have infinite patience with sin. And so now God's patience has run out and the God who is slow to anger Unleashes this tenth plague upon the nation. What do we see this morning? We saw that God revealed to Moses that this would be the final plague. After this plague, Pharaoh will let the people go. We've seen that this plague took place at midnight, in the middle of the night, the time when the Egyptian gods were said to do battle. Yahweh, Jehovah, went to battle against every revered spirit of Egypt. And he proved that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. We've already noted just how devastating this tenth plague was. The heartbreak of so many lives lost, including infant boys and little boys and teenage boys and we think probably even grown adult men who were firstborn sons. Words cannot convey such hurt. This plague was certainly a severe economic blow to the kingdom of Egypt, but it was an even more severe emotional blow to the kingdom of Egypt. And we have seen, and we'll spend more time later on the remarkable fact, that God's people were spared from this terrible plague. And they were spared not because they were undeserving of this judgment, they were sinners too. They were spared because God had set His love on them. God had made Israel his people. He adopted them as his own children. He declared Israel to be his firstborn son. God had a special love for that ancient people Israel, and he therefore made a way for them to be spared from this judgment through the blood of a lamb. And then finally this morning we noted that Moses left Pharaoh's presence in righteous anger. He was angry because Pharaoh refused to show true reverence and humility before the awesome, glorious Creator and sustainer God. He was angry because Pharaoh's stubbornness was going to reap so much pain for these people. Moses surely felt like he was beating his head against a wall. How could anybody be so obstinate and pig-headed as this Pharaoh? But of course Moses knew that this was all playing out exactly as God had foretold. And therefore the plague did happen. And the firstborn of Egypt did die. And there was a great cry in the land of Egypt. And so as we pick up tonight, we pick up with our final general observation. Namely, that as a result of this plague, Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. As a result of this plague, Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. So before we go any further, let's read these important verses again. So look with me at Exodus 11, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who was behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And then again to chapter 12, verse 29, chapter 12, verse 29, verses 29 through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. There are three things I want to say about Pharaoh now finally letting the people go. First, remember that Pharaoh had declared earlier that Moses had better not see his face again. For if Moses did, he said he would kill Moses. And Moses, in response, had declared that, in fact, he would not see Pharaoh's face again. And it's not because Moses was afraid of Pharaoh. It was because God was done sending Moses to Pharaoh to give Pharaoh an opportunity to repent. God was through With Pharaoh. Uh, So when we read here that Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and spoke to them, you need to know that that word summoned uh, is also translated in other verses as called or declared. In other words, it's likely that this communication between Pharaoh and Moses, uh, it probably happened through an embassy, through a messenger. Uh, It does not appear that Moses and and, and Pharaoh saw each other's face again. No, probably not. This probably happened through a messenger. Uh, Probably at this point, Moses' face is the last face Pharaoh ever wants to see again. Um, Moses' face will haunt Pharaoh for for the rest of his life. Uh, The second thing I want us to note is that Pharaoh has now truly come to a place of full submission. He's no longer seeking to wrangle with God. He's no longer seeking to be at the bargaining table with God. Remember the stipulations that Pharaoh kept trying to to put on the table after the other plagues. Moses, I'll let your people worship their God, but only within the land of Egypt. Or then later he said, Moses, I'll let your people go, but only the men, the women and children must stay behind. And then later it was, Moses, I'll let everyone go your flocks and herds must stay here in the land of Egypt. But now, finally, Pharaoh seems to have learned his lesson. The creature doesn't bargain with the Creator. The clay doesn't dictate dictate terms to the potter. Even the most powerful earthly king is in no position to wrangle with Almighty God. And so after this final plague, we hear the full concession of Pharaoh... Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And then the third point I want to make here is about those words of Pharaoh at the end of verse 32. Bless me also. In those words, we see the utter victory of God over Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh now sees himself as a man in need. And he calls for Moses and Aaron to cry out to their God on his behalf. Now it's important to note that this is still not true repentance on Pharaoh's part. Once someone finally comes to grips with the awesome power of God, they can go one of two ways. They can either submit to this awesome almighty God and love this God and serve this God, or in their bitterness and rage, they can play the fool and they can continue to attack this God even though they know they will lose in the end. Satan knows his theology better than any person in this room. At the end of the day, Satan knows he cannot win in his rebellion against God. But Satan hates God so much that his bitterness and his rage blind him and make him act in irrational ways. Satan is going to keep fighting against God, fighting against God, fighting against God, though he knows deep down he cannot win until the day God utterly destroys him. That's the path that Pharaoh begins to take. He now acknowledges that God is true and almighty and sovereign. But rather than now follow this God and trust this God and worship this God, he's going to grow in his anger until he mounts his chariot and he leads his forces in a desperate pursuit against God's people. But for now, where we are in our passage, Pharaoh has come face to face with the reality that Yahweh, the God of Moses, is the true and the almighty God. Okay, so that leads us into our next question. Who is the Egyptian deity being assaulted by this final plague? Every one of these plagues has struck at one of the central gods of Egypt, revealing their powerlessness. Which god is being assaulted here? And the answer, of course, is Pharaoh. Because remember, Pharaoh was worshipped as a god by the Egyptians. He, he was said to be the human incarnation of the chief god, Ray. Uh, Pharaoh held the staff of Osiris, wielding the power to exalt or to condemn. Uh, in the Egyptian schools, children were taught to sing hymns of praise to Pharaoh. One song of praise was, Ray has placed the king on the earth of the living forever and eternity. In order to judge humankind, to satisfy the gods, to make right happen, and to annihilate wrong, such that he gives divine offerings to the gods, funerary offerings to the blessed dead. The name of the king is in the sky like that of Ray. He lives in joy like Ray horakti Nobles rejoice when they see him. The populace gives him praise in his role of the child. And that's how Pharaoh was known as, the the child of Ray, the the son of God. That's how they would have referred to Pharaoh. I think I mentioned last Sunday night that the children of Egypt were taught to pray to Pharaoh. They would pray, Attend to me, rising sun that illuminates the two lands with his comeliness, O solar disk of mankind that dispels darkness from Egypt. The nature is likened to thy father, Ray, who arises in heaven." How interesting that the children of Israel were taught to pray to Pharaoh, and now we have Pharaoh saying to Moses, Pray for me. Go to your God and pray for me. On a practical level, no God in Egypt had more prominence than Pharaoh himself. And yet what happens in this tenth plague? Well, if I'm right about the timeline, then the Pharaoh that we're talking about here is Pharaoh Thutmose Moses the third. Pharaoh Thutmose III. He was the most powerful of all of Egypt's pharaohs. He reigned when Egypt was at the very height of its power, the largest extent of its empire. And we know from Egyptologists that the firstborn son of Pharaoh Thutmose III, a boy whose name was Amenemhat, was set to become Pharaoh after his father. But somewhere between the 24th and the 35th years of his father's reign, Egyptian scholars tell us that this firstborn son died. Now the year that most people think the Exodus events happened, 1446 B.C., falls right into the middle of those years where they say this firstborn son died. Pharaoh's own son, the future king of Egypt, the future god of Egypt, was struck down by the true God. And thus, the Pharaoh, this mighty God of Egypt, was shown to be powerless, even to protect his own son. It's no wonder that so many Egyptians gave their jewelry and their riches to the Israelites and urged them, please leave our kingdom. Leave now. Go away. No wonder we hear Pharaoh saying, up, leave immediately. Take whatever you need. Take your cattle. Take your herds. Get out of here no surprise that many Egyptians actually joined the Israelites, became a part of the Israelite nation, and took their God, Yahweh, to be their own God. God showed that he was sovereign, even over Pharaoh. Now, all through this series, we've noted how the book of Revelation looks back on these plagues as a picture of the last days. Um, The plagues were given as a warning sign of a great final plague to come. And so also there were plagues happening in our day, crying out to us of a final judgment to come. What is the prophetic lesson of this tenth and final plague? What is the message of this plague for us? It's very simple. A day of final judgment is coming. A day of final judgment is coming. This truth was central to the teaching of Jesus You say, Justin, I'm so tired. We've been talking about judgment, judgment, judgment and all these plagues. Friends, do you know who taught most about judgment? Jesus Christ. He talked about it all the time. It it was not a peripheral part of his teaching. It was not a, a secondary doctrine. Christ came to earth and in his teaching ministry, what was his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The last day has come. And when the last day ends, judgment will be here. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So even in his moral teaching, it was the judgment of God that was in view. In Matthew ten verse fifteen, Jesus taught that it would be worse in the final judgment. For those towns that rejected his apostles and rejected his teaching than even for Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus said that on the last day, the people of Nineveh would rise up and condemn the people of first century Israel because the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. But the Israelites would not repent even though they had the very son of God preaching to them. Jesus spoke in no uncertain terms in Matthew 25 about the Son of Man gathering all humanity before Him and then separating them into two groups, the sheep and the goats. The sheep He would welcome into paradise. The goats He would cast into hell. Now we could certainly preach a full series of sermons on the doctrine of the final judgment, but we're going to do that for another time. So what I want to do instead is just tick off for us with very little commentary, eight biblical truths about the final judgment. Eight biblical truths about the final judgment. So here they are. Number one, the final judgment will come at the end of the world immediately after the resurrection of all the dead. The final judgment will come at the end of the world immediately after the resurrection of all the dead. The Bible teaches in plain language that all people will one day be resurrected from the dead. You will be, I will be, our grandparents will be, the, the saints who have gone before, the wicked who have gone before. Every person who has ever lived on planet Earth will be resurrected. At death, our souls and our bodies separate. But there will be a day when Christ calls us each and every body and soul to be reunited in a resurrected form, ready to stand judgment. And immediately after this resurrection will come the judgment. In fact, the purpose of the resurrection is to fit us for judgment. You're not going to be judged as a half person. You're not going to be judged as, as just a soul. You're going to be judged as a whole person, body and soul, just as God created man to be. And so Christ resurrects you, brings your body and soul together so that you're ready to stand judgment. John five twenty eight and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Revelation 20, verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And then they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And So the Bible connects these two things, the resurrection of all the dead, and then the judgment. Number two, Christ Himself will be the judge, assisted by His angels, And his saints. Who will be the judge on the last day? It will be Christ himself. Who has been given this authority by his father. And Christ will be assisted by his angels. And even by his people. You and I dear Christian. Will not only be judged on the last day. But in some mysterious way. We will participate in the judgment of others. Where do I get that from? Well. There are several passages that teach us that Jesus will be the judge. So I'll read just one of those. Uh, Matthew 25, 31, 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So we, very clear language, Jesus will be the judge the angels will also have a role. And there are several passages that tell us about this. One is Matthew thirteen, forty-one and 42. And here we see the angels actually doing the bidding of Christ, both in gathering people for judgment and then in delivering these people to their final destination. Jesus says, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Other passages in Matthew's gospel give the same idea. The angels gather together people for judgment, and then the angels actually deliver those people into heaven or into hell. But what about Christians? What role will we have at the final judgment? Well, besides being judged ourselves, there are at least two passages that indicate that we will assist Christ in judging. Perhaps most astounding is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 3. Uh, listen to these words and consider what God is saying through the Apostle Paul. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So in that one passage alone, Paul speaks to regular Christians and tells them that they will one day participate both in judging the world and even in judging angels. And by the way, these were not super spiritual Christians that Paul was talking to. These were the Corinthians with all of their problems and sins that Paul had to address in that letter. And yet even they, even we, will one day participate in judgment. Number three, every individual of the human race will be judged. Every individual of the human race will be judged. Every person will be judged. Every person will be judged judged individually. There are some people that believe and teach that only non-Christians will stand for judgment. But that is contrary to what the Bible says. Every person will be judged, believer and unbeliever alike. In Romans 14.10, Paul is writing to fellow Christians when he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Or again, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so we'll all be judged. Number four. The standard of judgment will be the revealed will of God. The standard of judgment will be the revealed will of God. This is a common question. All right, what will I be judged according to on the last day? Well, Romans 2 gives us a very clear answer. We are going to be judged on the revealed will of God. So those Gentiles who never had a Bible, who never knew the word of God, they will be judged by the law of nature. They will be judged based on what was revealed to them about God and about His righteousness from creation itself. The Jews of the Old Testament will be judged on more than just the law of nature. They will be judged on the law of nature and by the Word of God that was given to them. For us who now have completed Bibles, we will be judged both on what we learn from nature, on what we have in the Old Testament and in the New We have greater revelation than others before us, but with that greater revelation comes greater responsibility. The more light we have from God, the more blessed we are, but also the more that we will be held accountable for on the last day. Romans 2, verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And in this way, each person will be judged fairly and righteously and every person will be found guilty before Almighty God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Number five, every part of our lives will be judged. Every part of our lives will be judged. Our thoughts will be judged. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You see, you and me, we see the outward acts of man, but on the last day, on the day of judgment, the, our inward thoughts, our motives, our intentions will be brought into the light and judged. Our words will be judged. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We've talked about before that the average person speaks 10,000 words a day. Um. If a person lives 80 years, 10,000 words a day, that's 282 million words for which they will give an account. Surely the wise man is the one whose words are few. We'll be judged on our thoughts, our words will be judged, of course our actions will be judged as well. Uh, Matthew 25, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. Notice, by the way, that those are actions of omission. Those are things that should have been done that were not done. And even that will come into the judgment. Not just the things you did but the things you didn't do that you should have done. Uh, Perhaps we also need to mention that even those things said, thought, or done in secret will be made known and judged. Uh, Several passages teach this. One is Ecclesiastes 12.14, the very last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, everything that we think is secret or hidden, it will be brought into light. Romans 2.16 speaks of the day when God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Our secrets are not truly secret. God sees them and they will be made known. They will be brought against us on the last day. Number six, our judgment will be a public event our judgment will be a public event. In fact, the Bible presents the day of judgment as the ultimate public event in which the entire human race is gathered together as well as all the heavenly hosts to witness the judgment. Uh, Your judgment will not be held in the privacy of a judge's quarters, but in a gathering of all God's created intelligent beings. Now you say, Justin... If all people are going to be judged that way individually, it's going to take a really long time. Maybe so. Or maybe there are factors in play that we don't fully know or understand. Time is one thing we'll have plenty of at that point. Eternity will be before us, either in heaven or in hell, but each of us will be judged, and each of us will be judged publicly. Why? Why public judgment? So that the God who we have disobeyed and dishonored will be publicly glorified in the sight of all. So that Christ will be vindicated as Lord over all, even those who cursed Him during those lifetimes so that true wickedness of the world will be seen by all as each person's secrets are revealed. We will come to grips with just how wicked people really were as secret sin after secret sin is exposed on the day of judgment so that nobody will think God unfair. Nobody will think that God is being cruel or harsh when each secret sin comes pouring out from each person. Each and every person's story will be told to magnify God's justice towards those He condemns, and to magnify His mercy towards those that He saves. And then this public judgment will also vindicate God's saints. So many of God's people who were hurt, slandered, imprisoned, even killed for the faith, and they will see those who harmed them judged by the Heavenly Father. One commentator says, Not only will the covenant people witness the exposure and condemnation of their enemies and persecutors, the persecutors of faithful Christians, the skeptics, and the mockers of the truth will witness the exaltation of believers for the fruits of faith and the good works done in the body. In other words, remember those martyrs in Revelation 6 saying, How long, O Lord, how long do you bring justice? Do you bring vengeance for these people that killed us? When will justice come? On this day, those martyrs will see justice brought. But not only that, those people who criticized Christians, who made fun of Christians, who said, you're foolish, you're narrow-minded, you're, you're living in past times, thinking they're, they're going to see God honor those Christians and reward them. It is a day when the tables are turned. It is a day when the humble shall be exalted. The meek shall inherit the earth. And the wicked, the proud, and the, ba- and the boastful shall be abased. And all who laughed at true religion, all who sought to demean God and His Christ, will be publicly cast into hell. Number seven. The verdict of Christ will be final and irrevocable or irrevocable. Um, there is no court of appeal. There is no higher authority, no supremer court to turn to. No pleas for mercy will be heard any longer. No excuses will be accepted. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. It's an office He earned as the Son of Man, living the life we've all failed to live. He earned His spot as judge over all. His decision will be the right decision. And His decision will be the final decision. And number eight, the final judgment will put a final end to all rebellion against God. The final judgment will put an end to all rebellion against God. One writer says, For thousands of years, God has showed patience and long-suffering to a wicked world. He has blessed the wicked with sunshine, rain, food, and delights of every kind beautiful beaches, lovely sunsets, family, friends, enjoyments, great food, fun, vacations, laughter, and merriment. But a day is coming when all rebellion will be crushed. For the unrepentant, the good times will come to an end. The doctrine of the final judgment is a total repudiation of evolutionary, cyclical, or Manichaean concepts of history. That is, views of history that don't have an end point. (laughs) There has been a long day for sinning. Therefore, God has ordained a special day for punishing. The definitive victory over evil that Christ achieved at the cross becomes a perfected reality on the day when the sheep are forever separated from the goats. Mount Hermon, the ultimate message of the ten plagues and the ultimate message of the tenth plague is that a day of judgment is coming for us too, and that we must make all due preparations right here and right now. How? Let's close our sermon tonight with the tenth purpose of these ten plagues, and here it is. God ordained these plagues to preach the good news that through the blood of God's appointed sacrifice, his people will be spared in the final judgment. Hear that again. This is the glorious news. This is the, the good news that the ten plagues have been leading to. It's, it's been judgment, 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 darkness, darkness, black, blackness. And then, and then what's it all for? It's all to create a backdrop so that God can preach the gospel in Exodus chapter 12. The ten plagues happened in order to preach the good news that through the blood of God's appointed sacrifice, His people will be spared in the final judgment. This is where the whole story has been going. This is where we've been building to. And This is where we're going in the next week or so. The glory of the Passover miracle is before us. But here's the bottom of it all. Jesus Christ is the spotless Lamb that was slain for sinners. And if you believe in Him, if you trust in Him, if you give yourself in love to Him, then your sins will be washed away. Your guilt before God will be gone, and you will be found blameless on the day of judgment. The righteousness of Jesus Christ will have been imputed to your account. You will stand before Christ on the last day, His grades on your report card. Christ Himself, your judge, will also be your Savior. And He will welcome you into paradise. There is only one way to pass through the judgment into the promised land. And Jesus Christ is that way. Through Jesus, the waters of God's wrath pile up. One on this side, one on that side but you walk safely across into the promised land. So if there's anyone here and you've not turned to Christ as your Savior, as your security on the day of judgment, as the one who is the captain of your salvation to bring you safely home, I would urge you to turn to Christ tonight. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.